life is so much cooler than ours <laughs> well she gets to travel and we just stay in the same cities forever yes yes we do <laughs> all right so we're going to be covering a lot of topics today um and we're going to start off by talking about book trailers so candice <laughs> why don't you you start off well first i feel we should address why you decided book trailers as a topic that needed to be spoken about it seems like there's a story here <laughs> I mean, there's not really a story. The story is that Candy's messaged me this morning and was like, are we recording today? And I was like, oh, fuck. So we were trying to think of subjects and I was Googling publishing news and there was a book trailer for Dan Brown's newest book. And I was like, one, I was like, ah, oh, Dan Brown, I remember when you were a big thing. And then I watched the book trailer and I was like, oh yes, book trailers, they're bizarre and ridiculous and I don't understand their existence. I am now Googling Dan Brown's book trailer because I was not told this, and I have to watch it. <laughs> Which is it's great for exciting. podcasts, I'm sure. Um, it's, it's just a lot of like city scenes and like dramatic music and the titles of his previous books and absolutely no details about his current. It's the the book that it is. I feel like it's mostly riding the wave of his like. This is an established author who's done a lot of other shit. Yeah, but do you need a description of Dan Brown's books because it's the same thing over and over? There is a mystery to be solved, there's a dude who solves it, there's a couple of chase scenes, there's sometimes a girl. It's true, and... it is basically the same book repackaged and done over and yeah. over and over again. There's something about theology and that's it. I say this as someone who's read about four or five of his books because I went through a spell where I was like, these are, they're not even bad, that's the worst bit. Like the first three quarters, really compelling, and then it mm -hmm. falls apart at the end. And yeah, you get to the end and you're like, maybe next time it'll be better. <laughs> yeah, he can't carry a satisfying conclusion. I read, yeah, I read like Angels and Demons and The Da Vinci Code and one, another book, I don't remember what it was called, but it was like really different. It was like all about computers and stuff. Was it? Oh God. It wasn't Ice Fortress, was it? I think it was maybe. Ice Fortress where there was like hackers and like, no, I don't know. No, it was like really contained it was just like there was two characters and they were in this facility and i i think it was the best thing i've read of his it was very interesting setup Let's see oh digital fortress oh that's digital the one fortress. i think i just mixed together like two different books <laughs> digital fortress and the one with the ice gun okay because i was like ice fortress that doesn't sound right digital fortress but you know sounds what more familiar. dan brown i've given you an idea <laughs> Take it, go forth, do what you will. <laughs> okay, so, uh, <laughs> anyways, um, the point was, I haven't, so I haven't watched, like, a ton of book trailers, but every once in a while I'll see a, a link to one on when I'm on a, a website or whatever, and I'll click on it, and every time I watch them, and I'm like, this is so weird, like, it's such a weird thing, I'm like, why are you creating like this like visual trailer for a printed medium that isn't going to be any sort of visual medium at any point in time unless it gets a movie deal, which most of them don't. So I'm like, why? Why though? Well, like I see it sort of like how music videos became a big thing. It was just an extension. However, unlike music videos, it does ruin, <laughs> try that in English, it does run the risk of ruining your own mental image of whatever's in the book, mm -hmm. which which is an issue. I will give you that. However, they are entertaining and usually really terrible, and I love it. <sighs> I feel like you're biased to, like, predisposed to like them because you just like terrible things. I do like terrible things. Is, is the problem with this. Yes. Yes, this is true. I like all sorts of... I was watching Days of Our Lives this morning, so, you know. Mm -hmm. I like all the terrible things. But yeah, they're fun. How can you not like them? 
I mean, like, I enjoy them, and I I agree with you that they're ridiculous and bad and funny in that way, but I just, I'm like, I don't get you. I feel like, I don't know, like, do, do a lot of people watch them? Are they a good marketing tool? I mean, I guess they must be at least an okay marketing tool if book publishers keep making them, but... I've never watched one and been like, I want to read this book based on this trailer, I guess, is my... Okay, that I will give you that. That is fair. So I guess it, I, get, I guess my it's more that I'm baffled by them as a marketing tool. I am. Oh, there's a Carve Mark one. I'm oh my rolling gosh, through a bunch of them, and hold on, is this as good as I hope it's going to be? Let me link you from the author of Divergent. Lots of colourful imagery. Wow. Okay. See, that's the other thing about like book trailers is I feel like they just don't have the budget to be anything <laughs> like you watch them and I, I just I get too distracted by like how bad the effects are and stuff like that and I'm like oh why did you even bother with this that was that was terrible I'm sorry I wanted I to the flower and it started good. bleeding I'm like no I can't deal with this <sighs> also now I'm re-reminded of how terrible that book was so I hope you know we're reading the next one next year no, we're not. Yes, I we refuse. are. I refuse. I refuse. You and Lindsay can do that. Mm -mm. Nope. We're reading it. Okay. I don't want to know what happens. <laughs> Anyways, do you have anything else to add about book trailers? No, because I'm sitting here watching book trailers right now. I'm now watching The Red Queen by Victoria Aviard. And I'm like, Focus. why has she got grey hair? Is this a plot point? Have I missed something? I kind of want to read this book. We may have found one that works. Again, does it work because it's like actually working in the way it's intended, or is it just working because you're a ridiculous human being? Actually, I found that it works if I have sound turned off. <laughs> as soon as you turn the sound on, it's ruined. It ruins it. <laughs> well, that doesn't speak well to their fucking power. <laughs> oh, okay. oh, oh. Sorry, you carry on. I'm just going to sit here and watch this one. Oh my god. Alright, so the, the sort of hopping off that, next subject, moving along. Um, we, I also, when I was looking for subjects for us to talk about this morning, I saw an article about Brooklyn Beckham's new book of travel photography. So Brooklyn Beckham is, of course, the, the daughter of no, David the son. Victoria. The son. Beckham. The daughter. The Fuck son. <laughs> Brooklyn. <coughs> Brooklyn Beckham is, of course, the son of David and Victoria Beckham. So, uh, the book, since it came out, has been getting some uh, criticism because the photographer, the photographs are shitty, and then other people are being like, oh, you should give him a break. Like, it's really impressive that he's had it published. And then, um, uh, Marina Hyde wrote in The Guardian who, where she was like, you know, he's famous child of famous parents, so let's put it in that context, which is, I feel like, is the thing that I was thinking when I was reading through it and people were like, especially the people being like, oh, you know, like, give him a break, it's really impressive that he's, like, been published and whatever, and I'm like, yeah, because he has rich and famous parents, like, it's not, like, a question of skill or, or deserving of that sort of recognition and accolades, there's lots of amazing photographers who aren't getting published because they don't have famous parents. They don't have those connections and that ability to make shit happen just by dropping their name. Agreed. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, okay, there were some really, really like dumbass comments that came out. So, my favorite one was um, Eleanor Davis says. Critics should give Brooklyn Beckham a break and encourage this budding photographer. After all, David Bailey didn't get his first photography job as an assistant until he was 21. So, let's go to David Bailey now. So, uh, let's see. I'm, I'm seeing whether he also had a footballer father and uh, a musician slash uh, fashion designer mother. And no, no, he did not. Like, his photos are okay, but like... I could take photos that are as okay as his, if not some of them better, and I'm like, so why don't I have a book of published photography? Also the fact that like they're like traveled around the world for these photographs, and it's like, oh, it's a travel journal. I'm like, yeah, because he's fucking rich. 
He has rich parents who can take him around the world to take these photograph photographs, and then he can't even take a good photo of an elephant. So, like, honestly. I'm seeing if there's an Amazon preview of the book, because apparently the captions are also pretty amazing. Let's have a Google. I mean, I'll give him points for the cover, because they know how to appeal to a teenage girl, which is, I think that was another thing mentioned in the article, teenage girls will mm-hmm. buy it. Like, yeah. Well, great. I mean, as much as mad respect I have for teenage girls, like. <sighs> I mean, I think we, we both remember what it's like to be a teenage girl. I mean, at that age, I had a massive poster of um, Orlando Bloom as Legolas on my wall, so I was not a great, you know, lover of taste. <laughs> um, I had posters of my chemical romance on my walls. Oh. No shame. I fucking... The Black Parade is an amazing album, and I stand by that to this day. I uh, can't even disagree. (laughs) (laughs) Right, okay. Look, there's an introduction to this book here. So, first of all, he has done an E.E. Cummings, and there are no capital letters. Oh, that's so pretentious. Thank you for picking up this copy of What I See. I can't believe I'm lucky enough to have been given the opportunity to create a book of my favourite pictures. I feel very fortunate. When I was 14, I wasn't doing too well at school and I was finding it frustrating. My dad is a big fan of photography and he bought me my first camera for my birthday. It was a Fujifilm. I remember it so clearly. We started shooting together on family holidays and whenever we were hanging out. At first, I just found it fun. We were living in Los Angeles and it was a great place to take pictures. Ah, this child. Right, um, let's scroll down some more. In 2016, I took a photography course in New York City and I shot a fragrance campaign for Burberry Brit and a photo diary for Paul and Bear. I know how lucky I am to have had these opportunities and all I want to do is try to get better and better. Child, no. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) They say a picture says a thousand words and I love... Okay, And I love the way images can tell a story. This book is divided into 66 stories. There are no page numbers, but every time a new story starts, there's a new chapter. That's the way I felt I could both express what I wanted to say with my pictures. Oh my god. (laughs) Oh god. And then it's followed by a montage of four pictures of him taking pictures, which is the same picture four times. Oh. Oh. No. Oh. Oh, these pictures. No. Sorry. Like, the preview pictures here, they are not good. They're literally... Like... What? No, they're just pictures of his family just standing in front of rocks. And it's taken in black and white. Alright. Chapter one. Sorry, I am reading this one out. Check out how long this, this description is. And how detailed. And how great. Iceland, 2016. One of the best places I've ever been. I went on vacation for a few days with my family. We stayed in a really remote cottage and the scenery was unbelievable. That's chapter one, guys. Chapter one. (laughs) Okay, so when I stop taking the piss out of this poor kid, um, it does raise a larger question about um, celebrities and books, which I think we've touched on before. Just what do you have to do to get a book? Um, Is there more emphasis on the fact you can sell books because of your name rather than the content? Um, In fact, does anyone give a shit what this kid puts into his book? Because really, he could have just like done a couple of stick figure doodles and they probably still would have published it. Um, I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? That it's like, people are like, oh, it's not that good, but it still got published because the publishing house, like in a very like, to be brutally honest way is like yeah this kid's famous and this will sell no matter what's in it it doesn't matter it's not a question of quality or discerning any sort of gatekeeping in terms of publishing being traditional publishing being a mechanism whereby things that are terrible get weeded out it's as soon as you've got a name that will sell they they publish it because it will sell and it's just a very cynical part of the book publishing process is it's not based, especially when it's celebrities, it's not based on quality or anything like that, it's name recognition, it's brand recognition Mm -hmm. I think nowadays um, there seems to be 
it it used to be that famous people got books and you're like uh, it's shit but okay but now there's like there are two types of famous people that get books you've got people who get famous for doing something who get books so you've got like for example youtubers they do whatever they do they get a book deal the kids go and buy it fine fair enough you know they got to that point somewhat honestly mm-hmm. um and then you've got people like freaking brooklyn beckham or um the kardashians who got famous for being famous somehow mm-hmm. like they didn't even work towards fame it just kind of got handed to them and i think that that's even worse because it's like you've literally not earned anything in any i don't I don't get it I'm sorry I do not understand it and I don't like it <laughs> and I think it's it's somehow worse than just some actor getting you know to publish his shitty novel or something yeah I don't know it just it bothers me not so much that it happens because like I I totally get the mechanisms by which it happens mm-hmm. I guess it bothers me in terms of people being like oh this is a really good book I'm like objectively it's terrible like let's not pretend <laughs> otherwise I agree if it's crap you might as well just say it's crap be yeah. honest be honest don't lie even if you meet this kid he's probably not gonna like you I'm gonna say her name there but I've forgotten who she is woman who Eleanor Davis there we go <laughs> <laughs> You know, really, who cares? <sighs> okay, moving on. Yeah. All right. What was next? Ooh. Uh, so there's an article in the Guardian about writers on the books that help them come out. The Guardian has, and if you have an interest in books, it's worth checking out the Guardian's book section every so often because they have um, sort of topical articles. Um, so this one is published because it's 50 years since the decriminalisation of homosexuality in the UK um, which really does not seem like a very long time it's terrifying but yeah, they got some of the biggest writers um, I think most of these are quite best selling now, aren't they? Um, to speak about the books that help them to come out or help them to realise that um, being you know gay lesbian or bisexual is okay um so we've got people like sarah waters uh who else jeanette winterson um combs i can never say his name calm to bean who i didn't even know was gay you learn something new every day <laughs> <laughs> jackie k uh who is the i was gonna say poet laureate i'm pretty sure that's not right national poet for scotland um well Emma Donoghue just a bunch of people it's worth going through and seeing if there's anyone you've read and that you like um, <clears throat> so me and Yasina both ended up reading this independently <laughs> what were your thoughts on it? I just I just thought it was a nice an interesting read like it's it's cool to see I mean I, in, books impact us especially like when you're younger books impact us in different ways at different times and can really help shape like your views of the world and your understanding of yourself and your understanding of other people. Um, and I think that's, uh, takes on a, a very, um, I feel like the first time a young queer person reads a book or encounters any other sort of media form with queer people in it can be a really life-changing experience, especially if you grow up in a space, which I think most queer people do because heteronormativity and heterosexuality is still very dominant in our culture. If you grow up in a space that doesn't have any sort of queer representation, where even if people are like totally chill with queer people, it's just kind of not talked about and it's not referenced and it's not normalized in any way. So I think for young queer people, there's always that really um, life-changing moment when you kind of encounter queer people in the media and why I think I will often argue that it's so critically important that we have representations of queer characters in children's and young adult media who get happy endings and happy lives and happy relationships with other queer people is because that representation at that age is so critically important when you're struggling with who you are and your sexuality and kind of worrying about whether or not that's okay because it is a deviation from the heterosexual norm that is presented to you in society, that it's so important to have that representation that says, this is okay, this is who you are. And I think reading these authors' stories of the books that kind of spoke to them and said that to them, 
and like showed them that there's other people like them in the world it's just kind of a really powerful thing to see that impact that it has on people and people who go on then to create the story other stories that might have the same impact on other young readers did you have a specific book that was that book for you you know i was thinking about that this morning um and I'm, I'm not sure I could say what was the first book that I ever read that had queer characters in it. Okay, so one I really remember is I read it in high school, um, and it's called Hello Groin um, by Beth Gooby, which is a ridiculous name, and I was kind of like, oh god, I have to read this, um, and people will see what the title book that I'm reading is, but it was about a young woman who falls in love with her female best friend. And that was something where it was really like, because I'd read, I think I'd read prior to that, I'd read books with queer male characters in it, but that, I think that was the first book that I read that had a queer female main character who was falling in love with her female best friend and she reciprocated her feelings and sort of that, that story and that narrative really, um, yeah, it was really crazy to see that in, in a book. How about you? <laughs> so I was thinking about this and... I think fan fiction ruined me for this moment because <laughs> I just I was reading fan fiction from about 13 onwards and so it was just normal to see all this stuff in fanfic and so it never occurred to me that there might be this one big moment for people where they have mm -hmm. a book and they go oh you know this speaks to me mm -hmm. um so yeah I didn't I never really had that um, I think the first book that I read where um, it was like surprising to me that the that this big character in it got to you know be not straight was um, the blood books and the smoke books by Tanya mm -hmm. Huff, um, in which Henry, who's the main vampire dude, he's in the blood books. He's with <laughs> with a bunch of evil. Um, but his main relationship is with Vicky, the main character. And then there was a spin-off series called The Smoke Books where he's with um, this guy called Tony. And it was like, huh, you can get away with doing this in fiction. <laughs> They'll actually publish you. Um, but in terms of that one big moment, no, I never had it. And I feel like I'm missing out now. Aww. Damn it. <laughs> I mean, like, I really grew up in a place where... I grew up in a lot of really, really small conservative Christian towns where talking about queer people was really, really taboo. And even though my parents are quite liberal and um, never said anything bad about queer people, there was still that really pervasive culture. So it was very difficult um, to deal with that growing up and literature was really, and like I had very, very limited access to the internet. Um, we had like one shared computer with dial-up internet and I had very limited time on it so I didn't really have that space in, in fandom until I got older so for me have, encountering it in books and it was books from the public library as well it was that thing where you know I didn't have to buy it and I could take it out and no one would know that I was reading these things um, that kind of allowed me to and I would I would specifically seek out books with queer characters to just kind of be like oh my god like this is people exist it's so strange how different our experiences are I mean granted it's because you are living in the middle of nowhere apparently with no tv <laughs> it is really hard to see how different everyone's experience can be um I did uh just uh to share share a story um because Sarah Waters is on the list, and um, Sarah Waters, I, I watched the shows based off of her books, the, the BBC um, miniseries based off her books before I read one of her books. Um, I read, watched, uh, is it Fingersmith and... Tipping the Velvet? Tipping the Velvet. Yeah. And then, I, and then I, after that, I read um, Fingersmith. Um, but I was at a bookstore recently uh, with one of my, a couple of my friends, um, one of whom is is also bisexual, one who's a lesbian, and we were looking around and poking around and talking about the books, and uh, we found a Sarah Waters book, and I was like, oh, Sarah Waters, and uh, my friend Emma, who's gay, was like, oh, I've never read that, 
And me and, and Helen and our other friends started making fun of her and just kind of being like, oh my god, I, I, I told her, like, Emma was, <laughs> Helen was making fun of her, and, and then I told her that I was going to take away her lesbian card because she hadn't read it. And um, she was, like, very upset by that, more upset than I actually meant to make her. I kind of felt bad, but she was very upset by that. So she, like, got a Sarah Waters book and read it, and she was like, there, it's fine now. She's like, I'm fine. <laughs> Okay. Um, and then it came out um, just the other weekend um, at a party that Helen has never actually read Finger, <laughs> or any Sarah Waters book. She was joining me and making fun of Emma for never having read it, but she herself had never read it, and Emma was so mad. She was like, you made me feel so bad, and you haven't even read it! <laughs> so. You are mean, and that's... I mean, it's hilarious, but you are mean. I am mean. I haven't read any of her books yet, but I also watch those TV shows and love them. And probably should read the books at some point. <laughs> I feel like watching Tipping the Velvet is like some sort of rite of passage. Yeah. Um, there's another, there's a movie um, called I Can't Think Straight. I don't know if you've ever watched it. Oh my god, have I? I, hold on. Oh yeah, yeah, it's uh, What's Her Face. It's, I think I've watched a couple of her novels. A novel? Try that again. A couple of her <laughs> films. Um, it's just there's a there's a great scene in it where um, the the main girl who's who's a lesbian uh, her sister's in her room and kind of like poking around and they're talking to each other and she sees that she has a bunch of Sarah Waters books on her dresser and she kind of looks at them and looks at her sister and is like do you have anything you want to tell me? <laughs> so we've gotten all about this film. This is a good film. Yeah, it is. I recommend it. <laughs> um, so. Let's have a look at some of the books that they were actually mentioned in this uh, article. Uh, Orlando's on here. Oh, I, <laughs> I'm sorry, okay? I cannot stand Orlando. No. By Virginia Woolf. It's a classic. I get that. <laughs> I hate it with every fibre of my being. Oh my goodness. I had fairly neutral feelings towards Orlando when I read it. I was like, okay, that happened. I had to read it for uni and I was just like, why are you doing this to me? I can't, I didn't like anything to do with it. Yeah, I definitely, I'm not crazy about the way that um, Virginia Woolf writes and I just kind of read it and I was like, eh, that happened. I don't know, I feel like I haven't read fucking any of the books that these authors are talking about. Oh, mm. Alana, the First Adventure by Tamara Pierce. Aww. Morris uh, by Ian Forster is mentioned in here. I love that book. Uh, someone mentions Shakespeare's sonnets, which are pretty good. He does have a number of sonnets written to a man. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't think I've read any of the others. No, I really haven't read any. I don't think I have anything to say about the books on this list. <laughs> I think we just, it's, what we've is we need read. to read. We need to read <laughs> more books, okay? This is what we're learning. <laughs> Read more of the gay classics, I feel, is the real takeaway. Yes, we do. Alright, moving on. So, our, our final subject of the day is the more intense one. Alright, so, kind of related to what we were talking about earlier with um, celebrities getting books published even though they're terrible, uh, we talk, I just talk about politicians and sort of political books that are published that include things that are that are outright lies. Like there's no, there's no um, fact checking involved in a lot of nonfiction books that are published. Um, so I kind of wanted to pose the question of what moral standards publishing could ever possibly be held to or be expected to hold itself to given the moral bankruptcy of capitalism itself. <laughs> so a small topic. Just yeah, a you light know, conversation. A, a light, light Sunday afternoon chat. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I just genuinely don't know where to start with that one. Wow. Uh, I think you should kick us off with this one. I mean, I think at the ba most basic level, my answer is that there isn't any sort of moral standard that publishing can be held to, even though I think it should be held accountable for its actions, and it should, internally, publishing as an industry should have the same sort of integrity that I think print journalism should ideally have, although print journalism also often fails that. 
sort of bar, but where you need to have fact-checking, you need to have sources, and you, I feel like you shouldn't be allowed to publish things in books that lends that, lends that sort of credibility of if this was published to things that are contain untruths and that do sway people's opinions in ways that are incredibly damaging. Um, and I think there should be a moral responsibility the same way I think there should be moral responsibility for anything that you you put out into this world but I do think it is an impossible ideal in capitalism to say that about publishing or any other sort of facet of of consumerism that it should be held to any moral grounds because capitalism as a whole is inherently immoral and when your bottom line is money things like morality cease to have any sort of meaning this reminds me of uh, a discussion that we had <laughs> quite a while ago now um, about Milo Yiannopoulos mm. when his his whole book thing went down. Um, basically, it was it Simon Schuster. Mm-hmm. I think it was Sam. Um, they wanted to publish a book by this guy who makes his career out of basically being a complete and utter jackass, um, and they were fine with this. They I think they approached him, they wanted to give him a huge advance for it and it was all going to go ahead until people in, you know, uh, who had heard about this book coming out, um, people who disliked his ideas um, and the way he, he, he's a horrible person, he has been, you know, damaging two people by um, convincing others to abuse them and ducks them. Um, and these people were like, well, do you really want to be doing this? This, you know, he's not a good person. Why do you want to be giving him money and giving him a platform? And eventually, uh, after a whole load of to-do, um, Simon has used to step down and the book wasn't released. Um, I'm not sure if he's found another publisher yet. Probably. Because there's going to be someone out there who's quite happy to publish something like that. Um, but yeah, this reminds me of that. You know, this is a publisher who are... It's, they're huge. They are one of... The biggest publishers uh, in this country at least, probably in the world, um, they are well respected and we, I would imagine most of us would look at them with, um, I was going to say with, with respect, no, I think most of us would look at them and say, you know, why would you do something like this, you have so much to lose, but then on the other hand, do they really? Because people are still going to be buying their books, they would buy his book when it came out, but Simon Schuster would still be receiving money. And like you said, that's the bottom line. Um, so I think we can expect a lot from publishing, but as you said, it always comes back to money. So what we expect is, isn't necessarily what's going to happen. You know, you can expect good things. You can go to someone like Penguin and say, I expect you to only publish good stuff, but there's still a business. There's eventually going to be a book, there probably has been many books by now, where you go, what the fuck were you thinking? But they still sell. And I think especially, like, I think 2017 is a year that's really highlighted um, for a lot of people the sort of, like, state of our society in terms of unchallenged belief that isn't based on factual reality. And the fact that we have for such a long time as a society allowed things to be presented as if they are... um, opinions and not outright lies or or um where is that going with this 2017 shitty year i think i i really think that um (laughs) donald trump being elected president really forced an abrupt um shift and and brexit as well abrupt shift in terms of um western countries especially looking at themselves and looking at their media and the way that media has been allowed to become a source of opinions presented as facts mm-hmm. and not facts that are backed up and verifiable and the fact that like people major media sources have given platforms to people who say that climate change isn't real or say things that are really racist or classist or homophobic and are giving a platform and a legitimacy to those people by putting them on TV, by publishing them, and even if they do have things in them that, where they have, like, say, a panelist on TV refuting them, they're still giving a platform to that opinion, and it's, 
Um, I think it's, 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 this year has been something where we've really, as a society, had to look at that and say, this is dangerous. This isn't, like, something that has no real-world effects. This is something that we've been doing without, like, considering the ramifications of presenting things that are opinions as if they are true. You, um, we're going to link to these, but you linked me to two articles earlier about, um, the fact that we, as, as people, as humans, tend to come up with an idea and stick to it, and <laughs> facts can't sway us from those ideas. Um, I think you're, you're right when you say, um, especially with Donald Trump, for example, his people can come along and say something, and for us, we know that it's a load of shit, so it doesn't affect us. We go, well, that's crap, and we disregard it. But there are people out there who listen to him, and so if one of his people come out and say climate change isn't real, these people go, okay, climate change isn't real. They won't think about it more critically. They won't look into it for, um, you know, the the truth in what he says, and then find there is none. They just accept it. So I think that's that. That is our biggest issue right now, is that people aren't willing to look critically, and even if they did, I think, I'm trying to think of how to get to my point. I can't do words today. No, fuck it, you carry on. <laughs> It'll come to me. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's exactly what you're saying, it's that people will have these opinions that aren't necessarily based on facts, and then you turn on the TV and you see someone on TV reinforcing your opinion and that um so one of the articles that i sent you is called is from um the new yorker and it's called why facts don't change our minds by elizabeth colbert and it talks about all these studies that they've done over and over again that show that once you have a belief and once you have this opinion in yourself that you have you have decided is a fact is a factual truth um, that at some point in your life you heard from an outside source and then internalized as an objective truth, anything that you see that agrees with you just reinforces it, and anything that you see that disagrees with you, you dismiss out of hand and even can help reinforce the truth of your own belief. And it's very, very difficult for anyone, either internally or externally, to shape those beliefs, especially the older you get, the more the more firmly entrenched those beliefs become in your sort of sense of identity and sense of self and the way that you view and interact the wor- with the world is so based upon those opinions that if you have an opinion and you turn on the TV and someone is saying, you know, climate change isn't real and you, you believe that climate change isn't real and you go on TV and the President of the United States is saying climate change isn't real, it doesn't matter that the, there is an overwhelming scientific consensus climate change is very real and will destroy us all if we do not act right fucking now mm-hmm. that doesn't matter because your belief is being reinforced by these authority figures over and over and over again and it doesn't matter that what they say has no basis in factual reality it doesn't matter that there are other people who are saying this is objectively not true mm-hmm. these are it's just being reinforced over and over and over again in this feedback loop that is very difficult to even attempt to break into so at the point I was trying to remember um, yeah so the point I was trying to get to before my brain completely froze up on me is that um, I think we've reached that point now where an idea that would once have been like for example same time last year someone had said climate change is shit there's no proof that, that wouldn't necessarily have been on all the big news shows because the news shows would have said well you know it's true this has you know we're not going to get anything out of giving this person airtime wouldn't have been called censorship then it would have just been called making a choice based on the fact that they know this is not true mm-hmm. whereas nowadays thanks to and i mean it is basically all down to trump's campaign at this point if we don't give those people airtime if we don't say okay climate change is true but here is an alternative view it's now being seen as censorship um, and that's what I'm really worried will be creeping into publishing soon. This idea that we have to give these books the same big platform, even though we know that they're not true, because there are people out there who believe it, and it will be censorship if we don't put it out there. Um, so that's what I was trying to get to. Just it's it's a really worrying trend recently. 
mm-hmm. and I think once it gets into publishing we're going to have a bigger problem because once you get to the point where you don't need things to have been um, fact checked how do you get back out of that you know one day presumably there will be a sane president you know things will calm down in Europe um, but how do you get back to that point where you're like okay you can have this book published if we look into it and we have you know reliable sources that say yes this is factual if you know if it's not factual we can't publish it how do you get back to that do you think there would be a way to get back to that eventually I don't know that there is without a, a really disruptive and um, world-changing shift in a lot of things. I think that it's hard to pull back from that spiral um, once you've started it, because especially in terms of, of news media, it's wrapped up in uh, like so many other things around sensationalism and the need to sell um, in an increasingly digital world and the 24-hour news cycle and the fact that fear and sensationalism will garnish more views and more purchases and more whatever traffic than things that are just like this is the objective reality of the situation because that can be boring to people and it even if it is true it's not necessarily what sells which is becoming a problem again <laughs> to go back to my original prompt is is a, really the problem with capitalism is because when you make money your bottom line it's very difficult to hold an industry to any sort of moral imperative because in the end those morals will lose out to the fact that businesses need to make money to survive and to for anyone to survive in in a capitalist society, you need to make money, and morals do lose out to that need to survive. And for for publishing and for journalism and stuff like that, that becomes even more of a like colossal issue than even on an individual level, because the moral um, selling out of of publishing and print media and, and journalism has these huge real world ramifications because. It is the propagation of these untruths that are presented as facts because there is no re- refuting of them. Um, just after election, I think it was it was the head of CNN or something said something about how, like in retrospect, they probably shouldn't have aired just hours and hours of Donald Trump speaking without having anyone coming on air to be like this. He, these things that he said were lies, and this is why, and this is why, because. It, it's because it did it did help him win the election is because this rhetoric and it's it's really appeals to people's basest instincts when it is based on fear and, and hatred and prejudice that people already hold within themselves that rhetoric is going to be inflammatory and speak to people's already held beliefs and without any sort of counterbalance it is just like you said just being presented and it's given an equal platform and it shouldn't be because that is <laughs> I don't know it's 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 awful and it shouldn't be happening but it is because capitalism is morally bankrupt <laughs> case in point <laughs> um, well I think you made that point quite clearly um, where are we going to go from here um, <laughs> no I think when you first mentioned this it reminded me of something that happened in publishing that is away from politics and that's um the clean eating fad which sounds like it should have nothing to do with it but bear with me so clean eating became like this huge thing a few years ago and there was this whole idea that if you ate raw foods if you ate um certain you know foods and you take off basically all the tasty bits um it would make you really healthy and everyone should do it which was great and all because and publishing bought into it they sold books by the bucket load except recently people have been saying you do realize this isn't actually healthy like if you tell someone get a bit of lettuce and they stick some avocado on it and like a single peanut you can't tell them that's going to be a sandwich that will get you through half the day because eventually these people will be malnourished um but this is something that publishing has been doing. They've been like, oh, you know what? There, there are these pretty girls who want to tell you to eat, you know, half a leaf of salad and you'll be fine. And the salad's good for you. So, you know, let's publish it. 
so they've made millions and millions and millions out of this now um and they're only just starting to be called out on it but all they seem to have done to fix the problem is just get rid of the clean eating label these same people are still bringing out books that have the same sort of content and it's like publishing what are you doing because you must know that these books are not healthy but because you're making money you don't care and I feel like it's a similar sort of thing to the whole political side of things mm-hmm. like just because people believe they're healthy publishing's like well we can get away with it let's just put out another Hem- Helmsley can't even say their name Hemsley? Helmsley book and you know sell millions and it'll be fine you know what could go wrong um so yeah I think publishing has form when it comes to just being complete and utter dicks Mm-hmm. and not really thinking things through to a logical conclusion no there there is a lot of stuff that that gets published just to like you said to move outside out, out of out of politics and into clean eating it's stuff like that that reinforces beliefs and um presents things that are untrue as like coming from experts and saying oh experts have said this like what experts no experts have said that Mm -hmm. no one who has any sort of understanding of human dietary and nutritional needs would say the stuff that is said in these books but they're published anyways and they're presented as facts and presented as things that are written by people who are really knowledgeable about the subject and they do contribute to problems in society such as eating disorders or just just not even if you're not going going away from traditional sort of definition sort not traditional definitions but traditional um like eating disorders as eating disorders like anorexia and bulimia and ednos moving away from that it just contributes to disordered eating because people who, even a lot of people especially today people who don't have a necessarily developed an eating disorder will still have really disordered eating patterns and understanding of their their food habits and what their consumption needs are because of the way that diet culture is perpetuated through these books and through these supposed experts saying these things that creates these really damaging ideas in our society and they're reinforced again and again because of this sort of view of it's been published it must be real yep i was just uh looking at this link that i saw and i completely forgotten about this case just to go off on an example for a moment there was uh, a book published called The Whole Pantry did you ever hear about that one? Mm, (laughs) Belle Gibson um, an Australian writer who did a blog and then a book all about how her clean eating, healthy eating whatever she wanted to call it, had cured her cancer except it turns out she hadn't had cancer yes I do remember this (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so this is an, an extreme example but an example nonetheless of how um, not looking into something and not being critical enough could be dangerous because there are people out there who may very well have gotten more ill if not died because they saw this woman saying I ate such and such and it cured my cancer and they might have gone along with that um, I think it's worth remembering that there are people out there who even if they wanted to think critically aren't very good at it Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't say that to be condescending it's just fact there are people who need a little bit of guidance Um, Mm -hmm. yeah so just publishers need to be very careful because whatever they're publishing if they're not looking into it properly it could be damaging in some way and I know that's true of all all media it could be true of what we're saying in this podcast but you know you have to be careful you have a responsibility and if you're going to be making millions and millions of pounds off something at least just you know try and do a bit of damage control mm-hmm. I don't really have a point beyond that apart from just don't be a dick <laughs> be good publishing be good yeah I mean it is it is something where it's it's hard to I guess to it's a hard thing to confront because I, even as we're saying this, I know there's no way to hold publishing to account for any of this, and it's very unlikely that they will ever hold themselves to account for it. So I guess the best we can do is to be be critical and be be vocally critical about things that are published, um, and say, you know, this is bullshit, and here's why. 
um, just and and really emphasize that just because something's been published doesn't mean that it is true or that it's been well researched or that it can be backed up by anything um, but it is it is something that it's there's not as as far as I can and see there's not really any sort of solution to it or any sort of way that it is ever going to change I don't I really don't think like I said earlier, it's it's something that it's hard to dig yourself out of. Once once we have a society have gone down this road, it's something that you can't really dig yourself out of, and because of of the mechanisms and the re the reward systems that are built into capitalism, there's no real imperative for any industry to dig themselves out of it, because it's the thing that makes money is is sensationalism and is is selling alternative facts <laughs> as as if they're they're real is and having that controversy too is what makes money and at the end of the day that's the only thing that matters yep <laughs> i don't know where we're going with this but yep <laughs> oh god the world is shit people <laughs> that can't be our conclusion that's so depressing <laughs> i, I want to say something profound but i've got nothing it's like oh Oh, why are we even having to have this conversation? <laughs> I know. I guess. I guess if the original question is what moral standards publishing could can be held to, given the moral bankruptcy of capitalism, oh. is that there isn't any. No. There, there are standards that I would like to hold them to, and there are standards that we as a public can try and hold them accountable to, but the reality is there, there isn't any standards that we can enforce upon them because in the end moral bankruptcy is rewarded through the mechanisms of capitalism <laughs> so my got, conclusion <laughs> is that we should destroy capitalism that is that is my end thought to conclude this podcast um, and this co discussion is <laughs> we should destroy capitalism which is often my conclusion of many things my conclusion was just publishers should give me a job and then I could be in there like we shouldn't do this, but we probably will anyway, but as long as you're paying me, go ahead. I'm a terrible person. See, this is this is exactly what I'm saying, is capitalism perpetuates moral bankruptcy, because I will fucking sell my soul in order to not be stressed about being able to pay my rent. I feel really bad whenever I talk to you, I'm like, I agree, but if a publisher were to give me money to do work for them, I would, I would take said money and I would do said work. <laughs> I mean, me too. I, like, you look at, like, looking at jobs and stuff like that, I'm like, well, like, this company is posting this job, and I think this company is objectionable for this and this and this and this reason, but if you want to pay me, like, <laughs> 50 grand a year, I will do fuck whatever you want. Or, like, like, because I, I do, I work in marketing, and I'm like, objectively, Marketing's fucked up. It's based on emotional manipulation and psychological tactics to get into people's heads to make them want to spend money and keep that mechanism of capitalism grinding away and keeping the poor people poor and keeping the working class down is all perpetuated through systems of marketing. And yet this is what I do for a job. And I'm like, yeah, if you'll pay me enough, whatever. Fuck my soul. I will do anything. Because... <laughs> There is, there, it's impossible to hold yourself to any sort of moral standards when so your survival depends on capitulating to the systems of capitalism and the evilness that they perpetuate. That should be the title for this episode. Fuck <laughs> capitalism, unless you'll give me a job. <laughs> I don't know, I, I just, I always think of... of I think it was like a meme or something that I saw once. It was something that was absolute garbage, but um, it was something along the lines of that, like, there is no such thing as moral absolutes in no, no, what was it? It was, it was, there is no such thing as ethical consumption in late stage capitalism. Which, well, part of whatever shitty meme it was, I think about a lot, and it is something that I think is very true. There's, there's no ethical consumption there's no way for me to look at things and be like i don't want to buy products that are produced in this way or are based on the exploitation of people in other countries because they're cheaper and they're all i can afford because i'm busy being exploited in this country because 
all workers are inherently exploited by the rich and by companies and our labor is exploited all the time and it's just there's nothing that you can do on an individual level and it's only through collective activism that we can implement change <laughs> that was a big point <laughs> sorry the end of this podcast is turning into and Yancina is gonna spend like 10 minutes promoting socialism <laughs> what up I just spent the whole thing <laughs> oh god I can't speak I spent the whole thing reminded of us in Edinburgh going to Primark just like I know it's terrible and I know they'll probably make this stuff in sweatshops but I have no money and they're good clothes that's what I'm saying no such thing as ethical consumerism in capitalism and therefore we should kill the rich well I think we should wrap this episode up <laughs> well no I saw this thing that I saw this thing the other day that was saying that it's, I think it's like the richest, like, eight people in the world have as much wealth as, like, like, 80% of the world's population or something like that. Like, it's obscene. It's ridiculous. Why, like, problem with capitalism is it turns wealth into a, a game for rich people to win by, like, collecting the most, and it's built on the death and ex- exploitation of other people. And it is utterly stripped of any sort of moral responsibility and any sort of community of care towards your fellow human beings. Yeah, but we probably shouldn't say we want to kill them on a podcast. Just throwing that out there. <laughs> just, just leaving that there for you to mull over. It's okay. I'm too poor to kill rich people because I can't get to where they live. But if they wanted to write me to their will, I could probably make it happen. Yes. Yeah. But again... <laughs> like, kill the rich, but also if you're listening to this podcast and want to throw like ten, ten grand, twenty grand, a million bucks my way, whatever, I would take that in a heartbeat. <laughs> I'm like, I will sell my soul. Like, kill the rich, but also if you want to give me money, okay. <laughs> okay, so this in this episode we have looked at the fact that book trailers are awful, but we kind of like them anyway. So, point number one. Um, then we looked at famous people having books published and just decided that the world is shit. Uh, I think the only good point that we got out of this episode was that sometimes books are really good for people who are coming out. Because after that, we got into deep, deep, deep subjects which uh, have ended in we should probably kill people. I. <laughs> I have to admit, this isn't where I thought this episode was going. (laughs) Well, then you haven't spent enough time casually talking about capitalism with me, because that's where the end of my capitalism rants usually end, is always just like, and we should kill the rich. (laughs) Right, okay. (laughs) I should have stopped like ten minutes ago. I had some nice conclusions there, and then I just just went off into like... I think the point when we were hopeless was better than the part where we could go to jail, so... That's a thing. Um, what's what's a podcast without a little bit of risk? Okay. No, seriously, we need a point to end on. A point that isn't about murder. Okay. Um. I don't, I don't think I have a point. I, I don't know that I would end with a point, but end with a question of what do our listeners think that we can do about that? Because we don't really... We haven't really come up with any sort of solution or any sort of way to hold publishing accountable. So to people listening, what do you think? Is there is there any way that as individuals or through collective action that we can hold publishing accountable to a moral standard? Nice, easy question. Should be really easy to tweet and answer it. 140 characters. <laughs> 140 character answer to how do we hold publishing to a moral standard? As individuals or through collective action. Yeah, that's... I feel like you can fit that answer to that in 140 characters. Right, so we are going to go so that Yazina <laughs> can show me how she's going to do this. <laughs> um, if you've made it through this episode, thank you for listening. I mean, I have to admit, not sure I would have. I think I, think I would have been lost completely about 20 minutes ago. But thanks for sticking with us. Um... And uh, yeah, we will we will see you next week. I haven't said our, our no, Twitter. Relax, no, relax, Candice. 
chill. So I, if, if you do want to, since, you know, we were talking about tweeting at us, if you want to tweet at us, our Twitter is Nice Young People. And you can find us also on Twitter as individuals. I'm at Eden Burned, E-D-E-N-B-U-R-N-E-D. I'm at Maniquez, M-A-N-Y-Q-U-I-R-E-S. And, and thank you for listening. Yeah. We, we forgot Lindsay. Lindsay was oh, that yeah. Lindsay 42. Lindsay with yeah. a Z and an E. Mm-hmm. There you go. Right. <laughs> We're getting there. <laughs> so, yes. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with... Uh, are we reading Becky Alberti's book next? <sighs> yes. Uh, Becky Alberti's The Upside of... Unrequited. Upside of Unrequited, yeah, yep. which is, is the sequel to, um, or not sequel, so much as, as same another, universe book. Yeah, yeah, another standalone, um, but there are cameos from uh, Slime of Earth, Slime of Sapien agenda, so that'll be fun. So that's us, and thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye! Bye! Go!